0: Welcome to Second Win, the podcast, where we uncover the stories, methods, and modalities of women and men who have found their purpose while walking this earth. Sometimes they found their second win by accident, sometimes by hardship, and sometimes by intent. There is always something to learn from others and really isn't finding our own purpose what we are all looking for. I know I am, and that's why I'm hosting this very podcast. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Welcome, Second Winders. I have Anthony Acampora with us today, and he is now the National Director of Faith-Based Services and Chaplain at Banyan Treatment Centers. He is an author. He's a global goodwill ambassador. He's a recipient of a Public Citizen of the Year Award. He is a segment host on America's Invisible Heroes talk show, a radio host, and all of this. And there's more, but we don't have time for that. But all of this has been accomplished in a true second wind moment of forgiveness. And Anthony reached out to me and I was thrilled to talk to him and hear this story. And I think you will be too. There's lots of twists and turns and I mean, kick them when they're down kind of thing. So, And, and how you pulled yourself out of it is incredible. And I think we can all learn from your experiences so welcome Anthony Thank
1: you glad to be here thanks so much love what you're doing
0: oh thank you yes so let's start Anthony with that moment that kind of changed your life like how you said well you know you say it (laughs) yeah
1: yeah well I mean I didn't really get myself through it it really had everything to do with God and his power and his mercy and, and just it was just a matter of really seeking Him with all of my heart, which the Bible tells us 85 times, to seek Him with all your heart, you'll find Him. And I never really did that, kind of half-heartedly, or you know, they call them the foxhole prayers when we're in trouble and that type of thing. So I didn't really want anything to do with Him other than that until my life was in shambles and everything just fell apart And back in 2006, 5, 6, and... Things just got really, really bad and, you know, I was completely hopeless and broken in spirit and all that type of stuff. And that's when I truly cried out to him. And when I did, finally, he showed up and he gave me the ability to forgive some people that I had tremendous resentments towards. And that's kind of what was fueling the whole thing. And he just gave me this peace, his peace. You know, they call it the peace that surpasses understanding. Right. Cause it's not based on our circumstance. It's a different type of piece. And that's what I started to tap into him and then started to apply his principles. And he's it's been as bad as it was for seven years, starting in 2006, it's been the last eight years have been the exact opposite. I mean, it's just the big things, the major things. He's just blessed me tremendously and I'm forever grateful. You know for him you know not giving up on me and pulling me out of that ditch of life that i was in
0: it was a pretty big ditch yeah it was kind of deep so let's go back a little bit because i mean you were kind of living a high life there and you had a decent upbringing and there was church involved in your life right can you tell us a little bit about that i
1: grew up in connecticut it was a you know a usual upbringing there was nothing really bad that happened we had to go to church i grew up catholic in the northeast and my father really emphasized that i never was into it i didn't really want to be there i was one of those what they call ceo christians christmas easter only and i didn't even really want to go then i just kind of felt was guilted into it so i didn't really have much relationship with god growing up it was just kind of religion you know, religious rule keeping. I had to go to Catholic school, had to be an altar boy. So when you're young, especially like me, get in trouble and all the time, you rebel against that. And that's what I did. And I kind of ran from God for years, but I did well worldly. I, I was in the security and investigations field for 18 years and I moved up the ranks and I worked in Manhattan. And then I was Promoted to regional director, then director of corporate security. And our stock was on fire with this company I was with. I just hit it at the right time. And so I was making a lot of money and had a lot of worldly things, but I still was empty. I still had that God shaped hole that, you know, I wasn't filling. I was trying to fill it with money and title and powers, you know, power and material things, but. That doesn't. Sweet,
0: so Anthony, you felt an emptiness. Is that? Yeah, like, I mean, even yeah. though you kept striving and getting and doing and becoming, there was still like. A- it was always what's the next
1: thing, no matter what level I was at. I remember I got promoted to regional and it was through a recruiter and I used to talk to her all the time. And I remember exactly where I was. As soon as I ended up getting that position, I would say, where's the director position? like I was always looking for the next level. So I was never really fulfilled or satisfied. Because, again, I I didn't have any faith or any relationship with God. It was all material, power, money, that type of thing. That's what was driving me. So I did well in that world, but I'm much happier being in this world in ministry and, and, and this type of thing, trying to really help people rather than just trying to get as much as you can from things.
0: Well, you're excelling. You're being, I mean, you're being recruited. You're getting money. You said you were getting the fame kind of it. People knew who you were. So what's not to like?
1: It's not rewarding as far as like it is to try to encourage people and try to help people and try to make a difference in their life. Like my job back then was either to have people fired or arrested for theft and Mm death, limp fraud. So you kind of become desensitized to human emotion. Like if somebody cried in front of me, I just figured they were lying. It was just an act. And so to do that type of job consistently and be successful at it, you have to almost be desensitized emotionally. You have to kind of pull back from that. And this is the exact opposite of what I'm doing now. It's trying to encourage and build people up and restore their lives rather than destroy it. I mean, they're doing it to themselves, but I'm kind of like a part of it as the investigator.
0: Right. So- at what point did your upward trajectory start getting you to where you ended up in this big, gigantic hole in the ground kind of thing? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. It happened in 2000. It started really in 2004. So I was at a company, a national company, and it was a publicly traded company, but it was almost like a private company because it was owned by one person. And we had a lot of power in this company he loved security a lot of times owners really love the security people because they look at it as like the people are stealing directly from them which they are really and so we had a lot of power late 2004 we get a new cfo chief financial officer my boss hated that because it took away his power and he was very much into that and and i was too really so it was this political war that started from like day this the cfo started And it just got worse and worse. I started to get really stressed out and anxious. And I was kind of in the middle of all of this stuff that was going on. And I ended up leaving in 2005, it went on for a few months. And what happened was I found out about a year later from somebody I was talking to that still worked there of what happened during this whole political war and how I was kind of blamed for some things. And lied about and blamed for stuff that I didn't even do, really. And that really, really hit me hard. And so I didn't sleep that night. It was January 26, 2006. I remember the date because I didn't sleep for about a month and a half after that. I was enraged, oh I was God. angry. I had, you know, I, I had someone to blame for all of this pain and loss. And so that's kind of what started this whole thing. It really went back to the core of it was. Unforgiveness, betrayal, resentment, and that's just building and building and building. And I had a really tough time over overcoming that to be able to forgive. And so that's what was the downfall. That's what started a lot of anxiety at a really high level, depression. And then that led into gambling and abusing alcohol and stuff like that. But it all went back to the core issue was betrayal, unforgiveness.
0: Okay. So when you left the company, what were you doing when you were finding out about, you know, the kind of backstabbing behavior, if you want to call that?
1: Yeah, I started an investigation company. It was Investigations and Security Consulting, and we're actually doing pretty well. And I I hated it. I'm more of like being around people and that connection and just being alone and doing these investigations and following people and stuff. It wasn't really my thing so i really didn't like it and i really wanted to go back to what i was doing so i was always kind of living in the past i kind of got stuck in this holding pattern in 2006 and it went on for seven years i just kept like having all these different scenarios of why this shouldn't have happened why i want to go back to california i want to do what i was doing and i was just very a lot of regrets i was living in a state of regrets And so that's not a healthy place to be living. And I really got mad at God because I was involved with a church for a while before I found out that this and all this stuff happened. So I had a a lot of resentments towards God also for, you know, the usual stuff. How, How do you allow this to happen? And, you know, all this type of thing. So it just it just spun out of control. It just got worse and worse and worse.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So why the alcohol? Why the gambling? What set that into motion? Because that ended up being what took over. Yeah, I always drank
1: a lot. You know, not every day, but on weekends, I I would drink a lot. I never really thought it was an issue. But the difference was, so of all places, I get like this addiction to gambling at a casino. Now I grew up in Connecticut and I wasn't really that far from the Foxwoods casinos and things never had an issue. I was a 40 minute flight when I lived in California to Vegas, never, never an issue. I would go there sometimes, sometimes I wouldn't even gamble, you know, and then all of a sudden I moved to Florida of all places, not really known for gambling, but they had, they they ended up having the hard rock casino and they got blackjack tables and other tables. I think it was 2007 and the reason that it became such an issue was because i was miserable in florida right the regrets the hatred the anger the resentment the, all that stuff right just misery so really what it was was trying to escape reality right i was tired of thinking of this stuff i was trying i was tired of being so so miserable and angry and everything so if i could sit at a blackjack table We could only think of one thing at a time. So I had to focus on what was going on there. And then I would drink the whole time too, before and right after. So it redirected my focus. So that's why it became such an issue. Wasn't the money I had. It was like a perfect storm. I had a lot of money from stock. I had had a lot of time on my hands and I was miserable. And that's a bad combination. And that's really Mm -hmm. the essence of why that turned into such an issue. I wasn't having fun, like, you know, you see people at Vegas on vacation with their friends. You know, they're happy, they're having a great time. And I was by myself, I was one of those degenerate gamblers that you would see at a casino. Like, they're there all the time, they're usually alone, they look pretty miserable, and, and that was me. And I didn't want anybody with me because they would have been trying to drag me out of there at two, three in the morning. So it really was simply an escape from reality. And it was escape from my misery. But it's really not an escape because you accumulate a lot more problems during that binge of drinking and gambling. And then you wake up. The worst part was waking up in these, you know, I basically almost lived there at this place with all these rooms. And you get a lot of stuff from the casinos. And I would wake up, though, with the same original pain and problems and issues. That was the worst part. You know, because it's like I have to go do this again. Nothing's really changed. It's just an illusion. The whole experience in the casino so it, it, and so you start to get lower and lower and lower and that's kind of how it progressed
0: and what you got to a point you were telling me which i didn't even know that you banned yourself yeah from going to casinos because you i mean you knew so you woke up you felt yucky you were pointing at your solar plexus like you knew this was a bad idea but it wasn't going away and you wanted to kind of numb, right? Numb numb what was going on. Think about something else, not be angry. You don't want to be sitting in your anger and your regrets and all that negativity. So you sit in something else, which is not healthy and good for you either. And so you decided at some point that maybe what you were doing shouldn't keep going. And you decided to ban yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I pretty much knew it was it was not a good thing to be doing and many people were telling me that including the blackjack dealers themselves I mean and I had two hosts the, the hosts at a casino their job is to make you stay there keep you happy give you up tickets to everything and all these different things and both of them at one point told me pulled me to the side so you got to get out of here they're like it's it's my job to keep you here and I'm telling you you're out of control like so they even saw it. So I knew I was just like totally off track and like a train, like off the tracks to railing. So the banning part, you know, if you go into any casino, they have a self-faring notice and you go there and meet with them and you show them your ID and everything. And you say, I want, I have a problem with gambling. I want to be banned from your facility. And they enforced it too. Cause I tried to go in a few times after I did that, and they kicked me out. Luckily, they just kicked me out. But you're telling them to arrest you for trespassing, and they they follow up on it. I was at this casino. It's another Seminole casino in outside of Naples, Florida. It's called a Mockley. It's a little casino, but it's a Seminole because I was living out in Naples. And I went in there a couple times, and then I was in there one day, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know, I just had this weird feeling. It was like a scary guy there, and they were walking around. And I was wondering what was going on and the issue was made. They were looking at me. So they brought me into the security office and I'm lying about and No, it was my brother. He did this as a joke. I wasn't me, this and that. But I'll never forget the, the guy that's like the head of security. He's looking, and I had fallen in there and, and filled out an accident report like a couple weeks before because I was so drunk and I hit my head like on a slot machine. So they had like that mm-hmm. picture, they had that signature. They have my license, that picture, that signature, and the barring notice. And I'm telling him it wasn't me. So the guy's looking at it, and he's like, well, these signatures are the exact same, and this is the same. And he's he's like, you're actually wearing the same shirt. In, in the whole... So he's like, I'm pretty sure it's you. And then I just was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, they, they let me go. But that's what it is. You ban yourself. It's called a self-barring notice. It's a good thing to do if you have a gambling issue. It helped because I couldn't go in there anymore. I found an alternative, but
0: so you get kicked out. What makes you finally end up? You ended up in a homeless shelter. Yeah. And that began that began your whole chaplainship, so to speak. Yeah. Well, how did that how did that come from all of that?
1: Well, it comes from burning many bridges and you know, you see people out on the street or whatever are homeless or in shelters. It's like how could that possibly happen? They don't have anyone they could call. Well, for seven years of what I was doing, which was, you know, the drinking, the gambling, hurting people, not showing up for stuff, being irresponsible, like the whole thing that goes with that, people start to, you know, bail out on you. And, you know, my my contact list, I think, went to, from like 80 or 90 people to three after seven years of this. And one of them was my sister. One of them was my nephew. And one of them was a friend from Connecticut. And I was living with my sister in Naples, Florida, and I found an alternative, which was a boat that went out of Fort Myers. It was a gambling boat. And she thought I was done with gambling and everything. And she found out and she kicked me out like my stuff was outside. I had nowhere to go and no one to call. So I ended up in this this place. It was a shelter, but it was also connected to a faith based program. And that's where I ended up, and that's where things really started to change for the better, because I restored my relationship with God, and I was also able to finally forgive these people that I despised. So it was a huge turning point with that, but it went to that point. I went from this high-level corporate position in New York City, California, all that stuff, to that. That was a real, real low point, but I needed it. I needed to be humbled. I needed to go through that experience to really seek God with all my heart. It goes right back from what we were saying in the beginning.
0: So curiosity has me thinking. So you wake up in a shelter after being wined and dine at these casinos, after having all this money. And, you know, you knew you had a problem because you actually said you put yourself in a couple of rehab places, but they were like the really nice rehab places and you paid for them, but you never really bought into it and you just left and went back to what you were doing, but it looks good on paper. Hey, I went to rehab, right? So you wake up, you wake up in a shelter, I would assume on a cot or something. What is going through your head?
1: Well, it was actually a mat on the floor in this huge cafeteria. It wasn't even in bed, but. The thing is, and I tell our clients in this program, the faith program that, that I work at, you know, the only way anybody could really help you in any of these types of places is by what you're telling them, right? They can't read your mind. It's all inside pain. It's underneath the surface stuff. The alcohol or the gambling or whatever it is is that's a byproduct of a lot of other pain. Most of the almost always, right? So I wasn't dealing with any of that when I was in any of these places because it was too painful. And I didn't have my fallback you know, plan, which is drinking to numb the pain, and self-medicate. So I would just avoid it. So I'd be there and I would pay a lot of money. These places were expensive and that was back then. It wasn't through insurance, it was private pay and I had to pay for these places. And I would do basically nothing in there, I was just there. So it went on, I would leave and then a couple of weeks later or whatever, I would end up right back in the same situation because that all that pain, the resentment, the betrayal, the hatred was still there. So the whole thing is you have to go, it's counterintuitive because we're used to numbing and medicating the pain. And with this stuff, it's like, no, you have to go towards the pain, go through it, process it, talk about it, get it out. And that's how you start to overcome it. And it's not easy. It's not a fun process by any means, but that's the key, I think.
0: Yeah. So you wake up on this mat. And what are you thinking?
1: Oh, man, it was just it was like a nightmare, like one of those nightmares when you're I don't know if you ever had any anxiety nightmares and you're like running or you're trying to get somewhere and it's like mud and you're just not going anywhere. Like, I felt like I was in like this unending nightmare. It did It was like surreal, you know, a lot of the times it was like another it was like watching a horror movie. You know, I just I was just kind of like I couldn't believe how things went so bad. So that was some of it. And then you connect with some people and it's like, there was like pharmacists in there. There was regional directors of sales. There was, it wasn't people like that you would think would be in there. It was people that something went wrong. They got divorced, their wife cheated on them, or they lost their career or whatever. And they just kind of went off the tracks. And so it wasn't really as bad, other than the bed bug attacks. It wasn't as bad as you might think, and that was bad. Bed bugs like us; they're parasites. It, it's gross, but they like a certain type of blood type, and I was the blood type.
0: Oh my god! And you were on the ground.
1: Yeah, and this mm-hmm. from the exterminator because he came in and he was like, "He goes only nests less than ten feet from the host," and I'm like, "What's the host?" He goes, "You are." He goes, "They <laughs> like your blood type." So he looks up there and they were like right above me and they would come down at night. It's terrible. But I ended up in Naples hospital twice from bed. I had welts everywhere. I was like allergic to them too. It was brutal. So that was pretty bad. I mean, it's most people don't even believe it. Like if you tell them, but that's what happened, you know?
0: And you had what I found in all of my interviews, there's always like a key person or a key thing That you don't even realize until you look back and you go, ah, that changed everything. You had that person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like when you go through a lot of traumatic stuff and a lot of storms, you don't really realize what you had until you start losing things. Right. And usually the people that we're dealing with that are, that are in our program. And I went through too. I didn't really kind of take people and things for granted. Right. And. Just peace of mind. That's all I used to pray for. I didn't care about money or titles. I used to. I couldn't sleep. I, I was up. I hear the garbage men coming at like five in the morning, and my prayer was not that there's anything wrong with doing that, but I was into all the other type of stuff, the high level stuff, and I was like, God, just let me do that. I will do anything. Just that peace of mind, just to be able to sleep, just to be not tormented by my own thoughts. Wow. So. So I took that for granted and a lot of other things. But yeah, I mean, I have three sisters. One of them stopped talking to me early on with this whole thing. It's like two months into it. She still doesn't talk to me, really. That hurt a lot. And I had two other sisters that went through this whole thing with me every step of the way. And I I was so out of it. Like when I would go to some treatment center, one would be sitting in front of me on the plane and the other one behind me. Like I wouldn't even be able to find my way through the airport. I was so depressed. I was so anxious. I was so, I mean, it was, it was brutal. So they really came through for me big time. And, you know, I always have to go back to without God and without that faith and without him showing up and, you know, I don't know where I would be. So I owe it all to him. And people always ask, how'd you get past this? How'd you get past the depression, anxiety, all this pain? And I always point to him because He was the only, he was the only way out of it. You know, there was no other ways. I tried every possible thing you could think of. And I couldn't forgive on my own because sometimes I did try, but I couldn't do it. So I had to kind of just totally surrender my will to his will because his will is to forgive. And I was operating outside of his will in unforgiveness and resentment. So I really couldn't blame him, even though I did, because he's telling me to forgive and I wouldn't. So finally I was able to truly from the heart and that's that was the game changer the life changer
0: you had a conduit sort of of a person that you met really early on do you remember telling me that i was like oh that person changed everything for you in the program and he said hey you should come to talk to one come to the meeting or something about the doctor yeah that's why i take these notes so I can remind you of these important people in your life. <laughs> yeah. No,
1: there was been people. I had a pastor that really stood by me, this guy, Pastor Rick. I used to talk to this guy for two, three hours a day, no matter what. He really helped me a lot. But I, yeah, I was in I was in Naples hospital. My plan was to go like into a state psychiatric hospital for the rest of my life. Like that was really my plan. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to be here anymore. I couldn't do it anymore. I mean, this was like seven years of this stuff. And I told him that, and I could barely look up. I was so messed up and down and everything. And I remember him answering me and saying he worked there for 17 years. He's like, that's not the place you want to spend the rest of your life. He started telling me about it. And then he said, I know of this faith-based program, and it was right down the street in Naples, Florida, and that's the place that I was talking about. It's called St. Matthew's House. And I had this, like, mustard seed of faith. I remember. I couldn't really put my head up, but I looked up at him and I had this little, little, little bit of hope and faith. And he's the one that directed me to this place. And again, this guy and I I connected with him like a couple of years after that and thanked him and everything. And, you know, he pretty much saved my life. That guy, you know, in that hospital.
0: And He sent you to what eventually put you in the chair you're sitting in right now. Yeah. Had he not been your physician that day and you had not opened up and said, well, I'm just going to go to this program and blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to do this. And he said, no, I don't think you should do that. Like you got to feel like God had something to do with putting all those pieces together. Don't you think?
1: and, And I don't know his background, what his faith was or anything like that. What preceded that was really bad because I had a plan. I already, I had 45, I had a prescription full of clonopin from a doctor somewhere else. And then I was in Naples and I was going to fill it and take 90 clonopin, which I wouldn't have survived. I doubt I would have.
0: Clonopin, what is that? For those of us who don't know. Antidepressant.
1: It's similar to Xanax. It's a benzodiazepine. And it like calms you down. Like one of them will. So you start, I mean, taking that amount would probably I don't think I would have survived. Right. So that was my plan. And I'm backing out of the driveway at my sister's house in Naples. And all of a sudden I couldn't move. I couldn't turn. I couldn't press the gas. I was like, I've never felt anything like it or since I was like partially paralyzed just when I went out to go to Walgreens. And I know that God stopped me in my tracks there. He intervened at that moment because if I got to Walgreens, I wouldn't be sitting here talking right now. Right. Finally, after about five, maybe seven minutes of this, I got my sister, one of them, on the on the phone on speaker, and I, I was explaining to her, like what was happening. I was freaking out, like I thought I was. I was felt like I was like paralyzed, and that's how I ended up in the hospital, going to that hospital, and then that's how this whole exchange happened with the doctor. But that's what happened before that. Again, I give God all the glory, because I that's the only thing I could attribute to to stop me from, and it wasn't that far either, the Walcreens. I literally had like a three minute drive and, and I would have, I, you know, that would have been it.
0: And your sister took you to the hospital, right? And then that's where you met this yeah, doctor. They always,
1: you know, with oh me and taking me all over the place. And I was living with, with one of them for a long time. I lived with her in, in South Florida on the East coast. And then in, in April's, man, put her through L. It was, I don't know how they even did it, but That's what families do, you know, most of them, you know, some of them don't, but they go through a lot of stuff and a lot of pain. That's why I was saying, that's why there's a lot of shame and regrets for putting our families through the stuff that we do, you know, but we're just really hurting people out of our own hurt, out of our own pain. You know, there's a saying, hurt people, hurt people. So Mm -hmm. it's not really who you are. You don't really want to do that, but you start to, you know, become a slave to whatever this addiction is, if it's alcohol or, or gambling or just the pain itself, right? So there's a lot. There's a lot to it. And there's it's complex, but God's bigger than anything that we could possibly be dealing with. And that's the good that came out of it. The other good that came out of it was he changes our heart. He transformed my heart. I never had a compassion or really empathy for people dealing with addiction or alcoholism or mental health disorders at all i just
0: you had lost all your empathy your business yeah essentially stripped you of having empathy for people you didn't care right what their situation was they were stealing or they were doing something that was like out of what you would allow for your security measures
1: yeah that's what the job was. And so that's how, you know, that's what you did. It was like, if you were in sales, making sales, this was taking people out for fraud, theft, investment, whatever it was. But, you know, I never really made fun of the people and stuff that were dealing with this stuff, but I just didn't know anything about it. So he allows us to go through stuff, right? There's a verse in Romans. It says suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. So as we persevere through all this pain and suffering and adversity, where he's developing our character and he's changing our heart from the inside, that's why he just doesn't remove it. And then that, then we're like hopeful. It's like, wait a minute, there might be a light at the end of this tunnel, that type of thing. So then all of a sudden you have this compassion and empathy for people that are going through similar things, which they are here and you want to help them. And so now he could use you for all the pain is there's a purpose for it. Right?
0: You said, and I love this, that one of the first lines you said to me, and I'm like, wait a second, I have to write that down right away. A mess always turns into a message.
1: Yeah, it does. It doesn't make sense when we're in it. There's a saying we live our life forward, we understand it looking backward. Seven years of absolute misery. I mean, it it was, I don't want to scratch the surface. It was really bad. Right. And now all I do is really pull from those experiences i write articles for different like magazines. I have three books. Another one just came out. 95% of it is pulling from pain that I went through and hurt that other people caused me. So if I didn't go through all that stuff, I, would really, I wouldn't have any books or articles or anything really to talk about that's going to try to help encourage somebody that is in the same position. So yeah, he will turn the mess into a message. And he'll use all of those bad choices and pain and hurt and loss for good, right? And it's really cool how that happens. And I, with our clients in here now, it's happening right now with someone. And it, they know it's him, and they're just blown away by it. And it's a really cool thing to see somebody's heart being transformed
0: genuinely. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what is it that you've learned, you've done, you've created the character? You're turning your mess into the message. What is it that you do now?
1: I eat a lot of pizza. No, as you can probably <laughs> tell. Yeah, well, I do, and I speak at different events and things like that. I'm going to be speaking at this faith leadership conference in Jacksonville in November. I'm a chaplain, so it's like I do ministry. I meet with our clients at, at Banyan Faith and Recovery Program. That's where I'm at now. It's in South Florida. It's a substance abuse and mental health program, right? And we have 15 of them throughout the country. But the faith and recovery program is here. So I meet with them individually. I do some groups. I do some outreach. And it's an awesome thing because I need to be around this myself, right? It helps me. It increases my faith watching them and listening to them. I do a devotional group each morning. We read out of a devotional. And there's a lot of people that come to it not that aren't even in our program. And you know, all I'm doing is really commenting on what they're saying. And I'm just like so encouraged. And I don't even really know them. I only know them of how bad they were when they first came in. You know, they're talking about stuff that it's a lot worse than, than that. So they're like, I mean, they we just had a baptism on Saturday. A lot of them got baptized at the beach. They're going to church now. They're reading the Bible. They're praying. And they say that. They're like, I've never done this before. I never wanted anything to do with God. I hated God. Like, and here they are telling other people about this program. And just they have joy. They have peace. And it's His peace, right? And that's what I was talking about before. He's filling this hole that they always had. This girl just said it this morning. She always felt empty. She always felt lonely. She always felt, you know, just like an outcast, you know, from society. And when you realize that you're not an alcat anymore, God still loves you, he still has a plan for you, he still has a purpose for you. It's hopeful, it's encouraging to them because they may not have heard that before, right?
0: I'm so glad you said that because I find, like we were talking about how you kept striving more and more and more and the hole was still there and you thought, well, maybe if I get the directorship or maybe if I get more money or I get an increase or I get stock options, whatever it is, and you think it's gonna fill that hole and I think, Many of us have been in that situation. Well, if I could just live in that neighborhood, if I could just have that house, you know, if I could just have that person or that title or that thing, then this this feeling of not having enough or not completeness, I guess is a good way to say that, goes away. And then all of a sudden you realize it's not, no matter what you achieve. And you can keep achieving and keep buying and keep growing and keep doing these things, but that hole's still there. Yep. And- You're saying exactly what George Dillard said on this podcast and a few other people as well, is that all that ails us, everything that we find that is wrong or how we're feeling is because we haven't found God. Do you feel that way as well?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's it. I mean, we're created to know God and go out and make him be known. Like, I mean, that's really the way I look at it. And I, I always knew there was something missing. I, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but that's exactly what it was. I, I used to host a radio show called Faith and Recovery and it aired in Atlanta and Orlando on a couple of different stations. But I had this guy on there one time. He's the director of spirituality and mental health programs at Harvard at McLean Hospital. He's a Harvard professor, Dr. David Rosemary. The guy's amazing. I've known him for a long time. But this was right around the time when there was a lot of suicides in Hollywood. It was Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, and there was just like a lot of that stuff going on. And like what you just said is exactly how I look at it. You hit the top of your game, whatever industry it is, the CEO making $20 a year or in the music industry or movie industry, and you get there and you realize, wait a minute, I thought this was going to make me happy and give me peace, and I still don't have it. And then this downward spiral starts because it's like, what else can I possibly do? They don't have God in their life, right? And they think, like you said, that title, that movie, that song that comes out or whatever. And I asked him about this on the show. And he was like, that's exactly it. And he's dealing with this all the time because this is a really high. It's one of the top psychiatric hospitals in the country. It was number one at one point, McLean Hospital. And he said they'll come in. They're making millions of dollars a year. They have all this fame and power and everything, and they're still empty. They're still broken. And so, I totally believe that, and I've seen that play out here over the past seven years in our faith program. We got a guy from NASA that was in here. He's making tons of money. Well, well-known guy, and he, you know, was broken completely, and he ended up, you know, coming to God. And he sent me an email like a couple of years ago and he was like, you're not going to believe this. I'm telling scientists at NASA about God and they're listening to me because I was one of them. Right. And so that's kind of how God works. I mean, he's, he doesn't call, call the qualified. He qualifies the call. Right. And he's going to use whatever people are going to listen to him because he was assigned to He's in NASA. They're not going to listen to me or the, gang member or whatever is not going to listen to me or like a pastor or something, but they'll listen to them. And so that's how God uses people, you know, and if they're able to connect with people and relate to people on their level.
0: Do you have an example, Anthony? I love that you talked about the NASA. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Do you have an example of like, since you've been there and is there a particular person or situation that you saw from beginning to I don't know, fruition or to the greater good of that person that you can share that just made you feel like you were in it and it was your purpose that really made your heart sing?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples, which is really incredible. I mean, sometimes you have one or two and it's like, there's one guy, what I love, and it's just happening right now too with a few girls that are in here. When somebody's not really into this, or they don't believe it, or they're, you know, agnostic or atheist, or we get clients that are involved in a lot of occult activity. And we've had 25-year Satanists in this program, Santeria, like all these different things. And people are like, why the heck would they be in this program? Well, because to them, they know God's real. They know Jesus is real. You don't have to convince them of that. They're just on the dark side of it. And they know he's their only hope, right? And that's why I encounter them a lot. But one guy, for example, he was he was an outspoken atheist and he used to debate in universities about atheism to Christians. He would go in there.
0: Oh, wow. He
1: was like, you know, apologetic, they call it.
0: I've met those people. They are really tough to have a conversation with.
1: Yeah, that was what he was one of them. Right. So somehow he ended up in our program. This is a few years ago and he really didn't want to be. But he was here and he stayed. And then he comes in my office like a week into it. He goes. Something's going on here because every time I try to leave, something will happen spiritually. Like we call them God incidents. They're not coincidences. But he started like telling me about different things, like he will try to walk out or something would happen. And then he got into it more and more. Then he got baptized. His father came out and got baptized with him, which is a whole other God story because they hated each other. And then he had a tattoo on his arm, which was some type of atheist like logo. Right? And at the end, when he finished the program, he said, I'm going to keep this atheist thing, but I'm going to put a line through it, put a cross above it right on his arm. That's how committed he was to atheism, and that's how committed he was to Christ now. And he actually sent a picture. He actually did it. So that was talk about somebody that was completely transformed and changed. I don't have the capacity to change someone's heart. I just I don't. None of us do. None of the staff does anything. God does, right? All I'm doing is kind of directing traffic here and trying to encourage people and tell them about stuff I went through and what God could do in their life, And that's it. But he's the one, God's the one that's actually transforming their heart, especially a guy like that. So that was an example of somebody that was completely, genuinely transformed from the inside out that didn't even want anything to do with this in the beginning, like most of them don't. Like I'll go downstairs when somebody comes in. A lot of our clients just come here; they don't even know we have a faith program. Probably about twenty to thirty percent come here for the program, but most of them don't. And ninety-eight percent of the time, when you say the Christian program, you have a faith-based program. You're like, no way, no, I don't want anything to do with that. I felt a lot of guilt. I felt a lot of shame. So that's what that's their initial impression. And then when they start talking to people in here that had the same impression, right? And it's not about judging and condemning and all that stuff. That's not how Jesus taught. So once they, you know, they realize it's not that, then they they come in too. And they also are encouraged by whoever's telling them because they're like, I knew this girl two years ago and she was horrible. And now she seems like she has peace and joy and she's telling me about God. Maybe it'll work for me. So that's how that's how it works. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. And then you decided to write books. Tell us a little bit about your books. What are their names and what's the purpose?
1: First book I wrote, I didn't know I was writing a book. I was a chaplain at a different company. And I used to just write these little stories, you know, and, and then I would print them out. And then I started emailing them out and people would say, you should get this published.
0: Stories about what, Anthony? What were these stories about? Just
1: like things that I've gone through, forgiveness, gratitude, you know, it would have a title. It would have like a little paragraph story. And then it would have like a Bible verse and a prayer. It's called impact Devote.
0: It was kind of like you were journaling an incident and then yeah. referencing it to the Bible, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's what it was. It was like a little devotional, like little stories. And then, like a couple of years later, I think it was 2017, I wrote a testimonial book, which is this. It's called Overcoming Emotional Obstacles Through Faith, right? And this was a book of testimonies of stuff that I went through. Some of the stuff I mentioned. So there's unforgiveness in here, there's depression, there's resentment, all that stuff. So that was that one, which I like that one the best out of all of them. And then the third one that just came out in May of this year is called Finding Hope in Hopelessness. And this is a faith-based and clinical conversation on overcoming adversity. So the COO of Banyan, the chief operating officer, he's also a therapist, licensed therapist, he writes the clinical conversation about all the different issues, anxiety, trauma, you know, stuff that we deal with here. Right. And then I write the faith perspective, the first chapter is hope. Right. So that's him. That's me. And actually I just got up. There's the Frankfurt festival, something. They want to feature this there in Germany in October, so we've been getting a lot of good feedback. There's also universities that have this book to get like for their professors and stuff because it's good because you have both perspectives. So even if you don't believe in God or you don't have any faith or whatever, you could still read the clinical approach to all these different things. But it's like a conversation. So it's kind of all intertwined.
0: That's amazing. Would you have ever thought years before that you would ever... Be writing faith-based books and having them in a university? Not at
1: all. No way. It,
0: oh, my gosh.
1: You know, and no, no, most people won't even believe it either. You know, I, I wasn't the greatest of students. I didn't finish school until 2018 when I got my master's. But, you know, I was always in trouble. I was always, I would have the same thing on every report card. Yeah, he has the brains, but he doesn't apply himself. He's always in trouble. And I never really wrote anything other than, like, investigative reports and incident reports and stuff. But I think when you go through a lot of stuff, you have a lot to pull from, and it's really just like from the heart and it just flows out. So, I mean, anybody can really do it. I mean, if you've especially if you've gone through a lot of adversity, so yeah. But no, no, I've never thought, ever thought that I would be doing that type of thing.
0: You can't say the wrong thing to the right person. You can't say the right thing to the wrong person. Yeah, exactly. Right? I heard that yesterday. I thought that was amazing. So what's next on your plate? Like, where are you going now? What are you thinking? I'm just, you know, whatever God has for me, whatever
1: doors open. I love working with Banyan. It's an amazing company. The owner's a devout Christian. He's the one that wanted this program. It'll be seven years in October. You know, I just, I don't know. I didn't think I was going to write a third book. I was like, no way. I was going to write a third book. It's a lot of work. And, You know, I have a publisher in Oregon with in-stock publishers, and, and they did all three. But it's just, it's so fulfilling trying to encourage and seeing these changes in people. I don't feel the need like I used to when I was in security. What's the next thing? Where's the regional position? Where's the director position? Where's the VP position? I really don't feel that at all because I'm fulfilled and, you know, with what's going on here. But- Whatever it is, whatever the opportunities are, I almost always, you know, I never turned down like whatever platform it is.
0: You just open to whatever comes your way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's worth it. I mean, you know, so I, like I said, like this, I get emails because my emails in this book, this one in particular, and I'll get messages from like a mother from who knows where, like Minnesota or like Nebraska. And they're like, my son's never read a book in his life. He hated God. Now he's going to church. And he he reads your book like every now, like stuff like that. And it's like, wow, you know,
0: it's amazing. Yeah. So I'm sure you still have days that, I mean, we all have these days where we're like, here I go again, I don't know, looking for some strength, looking for some something, some extra energy or a little bit of a motivational plug. What do you tell yourself? How do you, how do you keep doing what you're doing every day? Cause it's pretty selfless like you do the devotionals every day, you're there for people if they need you, whenever they need you. You probably can't time that up very well all the time. How do you keep going? Is there a mantra or anything you say to yourself?
1: I have people in my life that are encouraging and there's always going to be adversity. There's always going to be struggles and different things that come along. But it I really rely on uh, I go to God with it. You know, I watch a lot of different services and teachings and I try to stay away from the news because I used to watch it from five o'clock at night until like 11. Then I would try to sleep and that never, never really worked out too well. And, you know, it's just, I listen to a lot of worship music. I go to different events and things like there's so much to do in this circle, at least space circles, concerts and events and all kinds of different things. So there's not really a lack of things to do. And, you know, I still have my own personality. I have kind of a weird sense of humor. And I still have friends that like one of my best friends just came out from California last week and you know, that type of thing. But it's just, you know, there's going to be setbacks and different things like that. I don't stay in them. I used to stay in them. I used to get consumed with somebody said something or this happened or whatever. You know, I really try to move out of it pretty quickly. Right.
0: How do you do that? How do you move out of it quickly?
1: I get into the Bible. I read, read the word. I pray I just had something happen the other day and I really prayed about it. Like not just like the standard, you know, general prayer, like just really talking to God. And I know he strengthened me through it because I felt it. And then I'm able to move on. And I know the danger of harboring resentments and unforgiveness because I would live that out. So whenever it starts to kind of go down that road, which it could easily, I get with him and I would not, want to put myself in that position again because I know how devastating how destructive resentments are and unforgiveness, you know, so that type of thing. And so it's just, you know, you get burned so bad. It's like a kid putting his hand on the stove, right? The mother's telling him to get away from it and he doesn't listen. And then he puts his hand on it and gets burned and he never goes around the stove anymore. So it's kind of like that with me with unforgiveness and anger and resentment and all that type of stuff. I mean, we're gonna get angry. It's a natural emotion. It's not like we're not, but it's really what are we gonna what do we do with that? Do we stay in it? Do we hold grudges? Do we retaliate? Do we try to get back to the person? That's where it becomes a problem. And that's where I try to cut it off and just redirect my focus up, you know, on him. Not so much the human approval, but God approval.
0: Yeah. I love that. If there's one thing you want to leave us with a word of, or a sentence of wisdom, what would it be?
1: I would just say that, you know, don't give up on God because he hasn't given up on you and just don't lose hope, right? Because some in this world, it could, could be very hopeless, what's going on in the world with, with everything. And, you know, just put your trust in him, you know, because he's, like I said, bigger than anything that we are dealing with. And he will work all of those bad choices and pain and adversity and conflicts for good. If you allow it to, And he will turn the mess into a message, if we allow him to, because it's really, we have free will and it's going to be up to us. If we want to get with him, if we want to trust him, if we want him to use us, he's not going to force us into it. He's going to lead us. and we could follow, or we could go down a different path. So usually when you go down all those different paths and, through all that pain and, and adversity and everything you don't want to go down that again so we start to I start to trust in him with all my heart right and I'm not worried about all the details of his plan I just trust that he has one.
0: Well that's that's good stuff right there. <laughs> I'm super excited to share your story and what a story and where you were then where you went and now where you are rising up from It's amazing. And you're helping so many people. And I thank you for that. That's that's exactly what we're trying to do here on this earth, right? Yeah. Is is help people find their way.
1: God uses rescued people to help rescue people, right? He pulled me out of this ditch, this nightmare. Some of it was self-inflicted. A lot of it wasn't. It doesn't matter. It was a mess. And then he pulled me out of it and he wants to use that person, right? And he uses people. He uses rescued people right? To help other people that need to be rescued. Right. So there's nothing better than that. There's nothing more fulfilling than that, I think. And it's amazing that he would use somebody like me. Right. But he will. And he would use anyone. You know, you just have to kind of meet him. You just have to draw near to God. He'll draw near to you.
0: But it's not like you're an indentured servant and you're serving God all the time. You have a joy and a feeling of life now that overcomes anything. Right. And it's not work.
1: No, definitely not.
0: It's what you were telling me. My
1: father was in construction. We had an excavating company and I was part of it. I hated it. You have to be up at like five in the morning. I was digging like ditches and getting stung by bees and stuff. That was work. This is like, I have a three minute commute to go talk to people about God and stuff that I went through and try to encourage people. And I mean, it's really doesn't seem like work at all. So I'm like totally blessed to even have the opportunity to do this. And then to serve him and try to, you know, lead people to him. And, and, you know, it's not overwhelming and it's not like Bible thumping and everything, but I have to say what it is. And, you know, because people ask all the time, and how did you get past all this stuff? Because they're in it right now. And I tell them it's him. It really really is a surrendered heart and trusting in him and and he'll show up and then he'll use you too. He's looking for people to use him. He doesn't have a lot to choose from, right?
0: Well Anthony, I thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate, it. I so appreciate your candor, your honesty and sharing your story and I know it's going to affect many, many people who listen and maybe make people think a little bit more about hmm maybe I I should open my heart a little bit more. Maybe I should look up instead of looking out. I love how you said that. So, thank you so I much. I think you
1: said that. I don't think I said that. I don't know.
0: I think we said it was, it was a combo something like that but
1: thank you for what you're doing because you're you're blessing people and you're yes. encouraging and i mean it's amazing i love what you're doing when i first saw it i was reading about it I'm like this is this is incredible i want to get involved with this so keep, keep so doing much. what you're doing because it's it's having an impact you know there's no doubt
0: that's the goal that's what i'm going for <laughs> but i just love meeting people like you and creating these new friendships i feel so blessed because I've met so many cool people doing amazing things that I can really get behind and respect. And you are in the tribe, my friend. Awesome.
1: All right. The inner circle, remember that? Like from Meet the Parents with uh, De Niro. He's so always talking about being out yeah. of like, that. The,
0: yeah. Gotcha. That's a funny movie. All right. Thank you so much. Until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel.